Hi, my name is Jeremy Jensen, and I'm a public school educator in the Denver metro area. I'm on a quest, a quest to learn from as many educators out there as possible about the innovative approaches that are making learning authentic and meaningful. It's a very different world today than when our current education system was established, and I've been incredibly fortunate to have had opportunities to get to know some amazing educators who are working tirelessly to adapt to this new and evolving world. One common thread among these inspiring educators, I've come to find out, is their ability to balance both a passion to make progressive change with a humility and understanding that they don't have all the answers. Hence the name of this podcast, Humble Badass Educators. It's often easy to identify what's not working in our current education system, but it's a lot harder to figure out what changes really are having the most success. I invite you all to join me on this journey to hear about the secret sauce from the educators out there who are positively impacting our landscape. In fact, that's the point of this show, so that these ideas can hopefully be spread far and wide. My guest today is Myron Duick, author of the best-selling book, Grading Smarter, Not Harder, Assessment Strategies That Motivate Kids and Help Them Learn. Myron has been an educator in Canada and New Zealand for 22 years and is currently a vice principal at a high school in British Columbia. He has been published in Educational Leadership Magazine and has a three-part streaming series at ASCD.org called Ask Them. Myron expects his second book, Giving Students a Say, Smarter Assessment Practices to Empower and Engage, to be released in early 2021. He also coaches volleyball. In our conversation, Myron discusses not only the flaws of the traditional percentage-based grading system, but offers practical solutions to what an alternative could be in rethinking assessment practices. He gives his thoughts on why grading homework and using zeros in the traditional sense as an incentive to motivate students to complete work does not often produce the desired outcomes. Myron also talks about how we need to shift the narrative our students often walk around with by intentionally involving them in the assessment processes as frequently as possible. I was absolutely honored to talk with assessment guru Myron Duick on grading practices and much, much more. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, Myron. Jeremy, how are you doing? Doing well. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I, uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I told you or not that I was um, taking over a position here at a high school, and uh, and that's been interesting, but really, but really good for me. I think not traveling nearly as much. So there's there's lots of these kinds of things that I'm doing, you know, remotely and and, and lots of work with that. But but it's been really good to be on the inside of a school and trying to navigate some of these things. I have a I have a young teacher who's just biting at the bit to try a bunch of things in assessment. So it's going to be my little incubator. Awesome. Um, so yeah. Have, have a lot of the people at your school currently, are they pretty familiar with your work? Oh, for sure. I also try, I also try things off on my own staff, right? Like I'll be, I'll be working on a kind of a, uh, maybe a presentation or a, or a thought, at least a, a thought line. And I'll often try it at like a staff meeting or, or something. And, and uh, yeah, people are certainly familiar with it. You know, I, I think one of the challenges of working in a school when you, you know, when you do have some degree of, of notoriety and say in something, whatever it might be, but if it happens to be something related to education, I think it also intimidates some people too, you know, uh, afraid that, that oh, I'm doing this the wrong way, or I'm doing that the wrong way. And, and I, I hope to fit in well with your humble theme because, you know, all I've ever thought is that I'm still learning in this whole thing called assessment. 
absolutely. I, I know that sometimes people could be intimidated by people that may have, um, you know, a certain level of expertise or, or knowledge in things. And, you know, I think the ability to share that it's okay to be wherever you are on your path or on your journey, you know, like don't be ashamed or feel shame in any way for being who you are and where you are. Yeah, no, I agree. So it, it, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't, it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great question. We don't, we don't, I don't get asked that all the time. So, yeah. All right. Well, the, the first question I always ask to the guests is uh, tell the listeners about yourself. What makes you a badass and where does that intersect with humility? <laughs> all right. Well, I'm uh, a little bit, a little bit about myself. Okay. Well, I'm uh um, I was born November 7th, 1972. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm, I've been in, uh, been in education now for about 22 years, taught in, taught in New Zealand, taught in, um, uh, Manitoba and now over in British Columbia, you know, kind of stumbled into this thing called assessment really in, in the sense that what I think makes me a badass, Jeremy, is that I was minding my own business in my classroom and my principal walked into it in 2006. And he said, hey, Myron, want to go to a grading conference? Um, and I'm like, no, no, I don't want to go to a grading conference. I mean, ask somebody else. There's people looking for full-time contracts. They'll say yes to anything. Ask them. And he said, no, 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 I think it'd be really good. I go, no, I think it'd be terrible. And he goes, uh, well, that's really too bad, Myron. Um, you know, we, we had Portland Trailblazers tickets and there was talk of a brew pub. And I'm like, brew pub? Um, <laughs> nobody mentioned that. Uh, yeah, I'm in. I, I love grading conferences. They're the best thing ever. And I think what, what grew from that to be badass is, is I came back to my classroom after, after, you know, a couple sessions with Rick Stiggins and a few other people. And I just, I'm going to, I'm going to stop grading homework when I don't know who did it. I'm going to, I'm going to stop giving zeros because a kid didn't demonstrate understanding, but I know they understand some of it. What, what's the purpose of the zero? And then I started getting cornered at the, at the photocopier. I started getting, uh, tying my skates for my men's hockey night when I, when I work with a couple of colleagues and people leaning over going like, what's with you? You're, you're destroying the moral fabric of our school. And, and I mean, if, if, if destroying the moral fabric of your school isn't badass, I don't know what is, you know, um, take the mission statement off the wall and crush it. But the humility, you know, you got to be humble. You got to have some humility when, when you're when you're ready to enter a, a space and 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 a and a realm where you don't where it's new territory and and you know you can pull a Star Trek and boldly go where no one's gone before. But but I learned that conf confrontation in in assessment conversations and, and telling people that you're doing this wrong or, and making people feel like they've been making mistakes for a long time doesn't get you anywhere. Exploring some common questions and, and trying to understand where people are coming from is most important. You know, I, I found in the early days, you'd want to lock, lock horns with, with teachers that you think are disagreeing with your position, but you really have to start from the place of, I think we're all trying to benefit kids and help them like for the most part. I mean, there are, there probably are some people out there that I would even question that, but you got to be humble. You got to have some humility and realize that just because somebody has a certain set of beliefs that are contrary to your own, it doesn't mean they'd not, they're not approaching that thinking they're, they're working hard for kids and being, and, and making those, trying to help those kids become better people, you know? 
Um, and that took me a few years to figure out. So how was the brew pub, by the way? Well, you know, you want to start good. It was uh, Rock Bottom Brewery in uh, downtown Portland, and you just, it's just important to start with a good, with a good, I, with a good pale ale, and then move towards the IPA. You don't want to do that. <laughs> don't jump right in. I don't know. Or it's over your head, right? Exactly. So, what have you learned has worked then when it comes to having a difference of opinion about how to approach some of this work with other people out there that may not have the same mindset, right? Well, somebody gave me some good advice way back and I, I forget, I forget where I saw this, but it, it, it helps to, it, first of all, it helps to understand when you're talking with someone, I kind of put them in one of two camps. Typically, if we're going to like say we're, we're disagreeing about something, are they, are they able, but unwilling, meaning that they could do this if they wanted to, but but they're finding reasons like that. Typically it's philosophical. Typically it's, it's, it bumps into tradition and I'm going to be real honest. Sometimes it, it, I think people bring up those things, but they're afraid of, of switching up what they do because it's going to be some more work. Um, okay. So there's the first camp, right? I'm, I'm, I'm able, but I'm unwilling. And then there's other people you bump into who are, who are willing, but unable. So they're like, I could do this. I could, I could pull this off. Um, but they don't have the tools. They don't, they don't maybe have the confidence to dive in. They, they're willing to, but you know, it's like that person sitting on the, sitting on the edge of the pool. Who's like, I kind of want to swim, but, but I don't know if I want to dive in. The water's too cold. So, so Jeremy, you know, it, for me, it's been, it's been thinking about those folks. What, what, what camp are they in? And a whole nother lens to look through is one that's provided uh, so beneficial for me, um, provided by uh, Tom Gusky in his book, On Your Mark. And he talks about, there's kind of six different camps, if you will, on what your purpose is for grading and reporting. And I don't have to rattle off all six, but, but if you talk to someone long enough, you can kind of get a sense for what their purpose is. So the purpose could be to, um, uh, you know, um, evaluate instructional programs in your district or school. Okay, those are typically people that work on the on the district level or department level to analyze a program. Uh, one can be, I want to, the purpose of grading or assessment is to help direct students along their educational path. Uh, counselors are typically looking at grading and reporting on that level. But, but there are other people who will look, say, well, I want to encourage students to learn. Okay. And there might be other people who are saying, well, I want to give evidence of lack of effort or responsibility. Well, all right, well, that's quite different. So, so when you start talking to people and, and I encourage people to look up, you know, Tom Gusky's kind of six purposes. And I could even, if you wanted to, I could gladly, if there's an avenue to do this, supply you with that list. Um, I share it often in my sessions. It, once you understand what somebody's purpose is, then you can have a very different conversation about the tools they're using. So if you bump into someone who goes, I can't believe you're offering re retests in your classroom. I can't believe it, Myron, wrecking the moral fabric of our school. But then you get into it a little further, what do you mean? They should have studied the first time. They should have been ready the first time. Oh, okay, so, so you want your grades to reflect um, uh, lack of preparation, lack of responsibility, work ethic. 
and that's fine. Like if that's what their purpose is, then you start to see why they feel this way about this policy, right? If, if mine is to, um, my purpose for grading reporting is to accurately determine what somebody understands, then I, then I'm going to be a whole lot more willing to engage in an ongoing assessment program or a retesting program. What happens when you're in an environment where multiple people have various purposes? Like, you know, you're trying to run an organization where you want there to be sort of an aligned purpose, you know, a, a streamlined way of thinking of like, we all agree that this is a purpose. What happens when you run into the opposite? Well, I think what you have to look for then is what does your, what does your jurisdiction call for? What does your, what does your province, your state, your international school, your country, are there a set of, are there a set of standards? Is the, is the governing body giving any direction as to what maybe, maybe what you should be doing? So here in British Columbia, for example, uh, we have, we have curriculum documents and a, and a, and a distinct move within our, within our curriculum to say, we want to assess students on what's called a curricular competency. So now we have a set of standards, if you will, and those standards, and you start looking around, you go, that's when you're looking, I, I think, for splitting your, your reporting into at least three categories. And I'm going to pull up uh, Gusky's work again here. One category should be your absolute kind of academic performance. And I don't want to mix in that you had a late assignment here or that you, that you, you took a zero because you didn't do the assignment there. If I want to if my, if, my first perp, if my first category is to determine your academic performance and what you understand, then I'm going to do everything I can to try to accurately determine that. Then, then the other category is the, the process category. Like what, what, did you, what did you do along the way? And, and if that's a separate category, I can say, you know, Jeremy, it's, it's kind of, I think it's a bit of a work ethic issue that you're not really putting in full effort. You're you tend to lag behind in a lot of your assignments and you quickly try to get them done. I'm not grading, I'm not grading that element of your work. I'm just saying that's the, that's the process you took to getting where you are. And then the final one is progress. This is my third category. What direction are you moving in? You know, if you, you know, you, you sometimes ask people if you're, if you're married to a percentage system, you might ask someone, so what do you think of 94%? A lot of people go, that's really good. Mm, not if, not if you're used to 99, it all depends what direction you're moving in. So what's your progress? What, which direction is this going? So product, your actual learning, your demonstrations of learning process, the avenue you took to get there. And finally, uh, progress, what direction are you moving in? I think what you can do, Jeremy, with a, with a with a reporting process like that is you can you can start to welcome a lot of different opinions in, because there's a place for people to there's a place for people to report what they what they think is really important. I just think too often we throw all of those things into a blender, hit the button, spit out a number, and suddenly that number doesn't actually represent what we want it to. So do you think that those things should be sort of left up to the professionals and give the autonomy for people to be able to do as they, as they need to within their different courses? So I think there's tons of room for teacher autonomy in, in I'm going to, okay, I'm going to throw the term out there just brace for it in a standards based grading structure, there's plenty of room for autonomy on how you want to get there. But the standards, are the standards. This is what, this is what the benchmark will be. 
say it's a next gener next generation science standard, let's say where it's uh, you know examine a process by which uh, matter uh, trans transforms from one state to another, whatever the whatever the science standard might be. Well, that's that's a given. That's a standard. And it's going and that that should be a standard that is that is addressed and covered and explored in any science class that's that's taking next gen that uses those standards. Or if you're in Montana. Uh, well, I should be able to go online, look up Montana State Learning Standards, and there isn't a lot of autonomy there. I'm not going to walk in and go, you know, I think the standards I'm going to use in this class are going to come from my Uncle Gus up in Alaska. I'm going to mail him, and he's going to send them to me. That's not the place for autonomy. Where what is the place for autonomy is to go, okay, so it says evaluate your own personal water, uh, own personal usage of natural resources da-da-da-da-da. Uh, All right, well, how am I going to do that with my students? Hmm. I'm going to get them to calculate their own personal level of water use for two weeks, and we're gonna, I'm going to have them do a project. So now there's all kinds of autonomy. I know the destination. The destination is that standard. How we get there, what, what resources I choose to use, uh, the activities I plan, there's tons of autonomy there. But I'm a big proponent that there should be common standards just as there are in the plethora of other areas in our society. You can't just produce a box of cookies in some factory and send them out to the general public without paying attention to safety standards, without paying attention to packaging and handling standards. The person who comes in, Jeremy, and tiles your floor in your bathroom will have a whole set of standards as to how strong the floor should be and how the tile should set and all these things. You're not looking for autonomy there. The arrangement of the tile, the tile colors, the tile choice, there's lots of autonomy in that. But you don't want to fudge the American tiling standards or you're going to have a cracked floor. No, that makes, that makes total sense to me. I think, you know, you wrote the whole chapter on creativity in your original book that, you know, that's where the authenticity really comes into play. What have you learned in your research and in your time, uh, spending so much time thinking about grading, um, has worked in the past and, and doesn't work? Uh, well, if I put it in a nutshell, let's go, let's go, back, to, let's go back to the standards for a second. The, the best thing I ever did, Jeremy, if I look at my whole, the whole journey, is as far as, as far as concrete things to do, Overall, my best thing I ever did is try to try to really figure out what my purpose is and what my to 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 develop an educational rudder. In my in my upcoming book, I really go there. I, I go into something called an elevator pitch. Well, what you know, Steve Jobs with Apple would have an elevator pitch. Like what makes Apple Apple? Well, we take really complex technology and make it easy to use for the end user. Oh, all right, that makes sense. I would in my in my upcoming book, I challenge people to come up with an elevator pitch. Like how what 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 would be your pitch for your own approach to education? And, um, and I'm going to use, I'm just going to talk about that book for a second. And then I'm going to dive back. Okay. So, so in that one, I'm going to say, I think it, it, I'm, I'm arrived somewhere at in my assessment practices, I'm going to do everything I can to encourage student voice choice and, and, and widen the window by which they can demonstrate learning. Right. It's kind of my, that's my goal. That's what I want to do and welcome them into the realm of assessment, not being something that we, we always do to students, but rather with them. So overall, that's the most important thing. But from a tool point of view, 
one of the best things I ever did is I came back from that good old conference in 2006 and I started building student-friendly unit plans that clearly laid out what my students needed to know, what they needed to reason, the skills they would need to show, and what they need to produce. I didn't know it at the time, Jeremy, but when I built those, it, it changed the way I grade because it, suddenly we had a document where I go, whatever the whatever their score or grade or standing is after this unit, it's going to be the extent to which they have understood and been able to demonstrate this. And suddenly that brought into sharp focus. Well, so why am I, why am I deducting 10% a day for something that's late? Why did I give that kid a zero when I was really frustrated? He skipped the day of the test. I knew he went out and hung out with his buddies. That's it. Zero. But but I know from our conversations in class, I know he knows some of this. So once I had an objective, then it brought into question a lot of the things it was doing. And, and I guess for the listeners, probably most pointedly with your question, I would say that shifting some of my traditional mindsets around grading and grading and assessment and reporting did have the greatest impact on marginalized learners and, and on struggling learners. Those are people that, that regularly take, take the penalty of a missing assignment, late assignment. And, and a lot of times I write about it in my book, kind of the whole care uh, approach to whether I'm going to use a, what could be a punitive grading um, policy or move. A lot of students don't have even control over the causational variables. Right? So, that was given a class of 25 students um, that had all failed social studies nine or social studies 10. And it gave them, gave me this class in grade 11 where it was so, it was laid so bare that the script these kids carry around in their back pocket is I'm not going to be successful in this class. The, the rules are not steeped in my favor for how I know it's going to go. I will not hand all the things in. I will not get the homework done. And when you start digging into what, what their home looks like, and you start digging into what after school looks like for them, it isn't an even playing field for them. So I shifted to very little homework with a group like that, did a ton of learning in the room, a ton of activities, and simply sought to determine to what extent do these students understand these learning outcomes get away from those, those, those penalties of lates and zeros and missing assignments. Just go for those standards and use the time you have with them. And it was, uh, it was amazing. It was a paradigm shift. That's what it was. That would say a little bit more about the penalties, about the, the shift away from a zero. Why does that have such a psychological effect on a student? Well, there's a couple layers to the use of zeros. Like, like, let's be clear, I got no problem with using zeros. It's a valuable little number. I believe it was the Chinese that came up with it in like 4,000 BC or something, which is also interesting. There was actually no, that was a, that was a number that came along even after some of the other numbers, this, this, the concept of nothing. Um, anyway, we're not going to go too far down that path. People just switch the podcast off. Um, um, but, but zeros, you know, I, I, I don't, if there's a, if there's a basketball game uh, that's at the end of the first quarter in my gym here at the school, 
and it's 14-0 for a team, I don't walk over to the scorekeepers and whisper to them, okay, we don't use zeros here, guys, so let's at least put one up on the scoreboard there. No, no, there's a place for them. The pr one, of the, one of the key pieces around a zero is that, is that people will often argue, uh, well, I didn't get anything, and if there's nothing there, it's a zero. All right, I, I totally get that argument. So there's nothing there. Does that mean it doesn't exist? Does that mean, does that mean the understanding isn't there? Does that mean that the knowledge isn't there? Um, because I find that highly unlikely. If somebody, spent, if somebody spent a fair bit of time in your class, Jeremy, and hung out with you, and then they just said, you know what, I'm, I'm just not gonna do this unit test at all. And you said, well, then zero it is. Depending, like, if, somebody, if, 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 if somebody came from another planet and you kind of described what you were doing in your classroom, okay, what's a grade book? Well, a grade book is where you put numbers or symbols that represent what somebody understands. And they looked at that and they said, so, so that person didn't understand anything you taught them? Well, no, 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 they did. Well, then why'd you put the zero in there? Well, they didn't demonstrate it. So you don't think it exists? No, they, did, they didn't show it. Okay, well, then, then someone could argue that's a different issue. Once you know something exists, you, I have a problem putting a zero there. And let's pretend there's a, there's a thousand people out there. Well, if it's your podcast, a million people out there right now thinking, hold on, hold on. Now you're just going to guess. Now, you, now you're just going to go, well, well there's got to be something they know. How would you ever know? Well, I would flip that on them. You're telling me it's nothing? You're worried about me guessing what it might be, but you're, you're going to put a number in that represents nothing. I think you're going to be more inaccurate than me on any number we come up with. I might say, well, I think that student knows a fair bit. That's going to be more accurate than zero if I believe they know something. Having said all that, Jeremy, this whole conversation of the zero would more or less go away if we would divorce ourselves of the percentage system in high schools and middle schools. That's the problem. It's not the zero. It's the system in which the zero exists. So if you go to many parts of the United States, your um, pass is a 60, and it goes 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, and down from 100, it goes A, B, C, D, and then at 60, there's this, there's this long ledge with there's a drop off at 60 which the zero is way out here so the moment you assign a zero and you put that in a grade book that averages scores that zero is so heavily weighted to bring the bring that average down it's six increments over from that 60 and if you and if someone goes Myron you've already, you've already lost me just grab a calculator put random numbers down like 63, 72, 68. Put five numbers like that into your calculator. Add them up, divide by five, there's an average. Okay, so factor a zero in there and then find your average. That average will likely drop a solid, say 10 percentage points. Oh, okay, then I'm gonna put another one of the regular numbers in and it will slowly creep its way up where people in my sessions, I'll show them, I'll show them this, and it says, eventually, to, to account for that one zero, to bring the average back to where it was, 
that student has to so greatly exceed their other scores that you have to eventually plug an 80 and a 90 and another 90 into that set of numbers to bring it back to the original average. It's the zero that acts as a torpedo to the ship if two things exist, averaging in a percentage system. That's the issue. So your biggest argument would be to change the system itself. Absolutely. What if we're not able to do that within a certain place? Like, is there an alternative that would work within a percentage system that would allow for students, I guess, to still be held accountable without this zero detrimenting their score in a way that they're not going to be able to recover? A lot of people are, are going to say, um, or do say, that, you know, if I don't give a zero, my student is not going to do this work. Hmm. Well... You know, I find that interesting too. So, so if a student, if you subscribe to that belief, I would say in my experience, if I have a high functioning class that where students are tend to be motivated by the grades, they want to do well. Yeah, a zero is going to scare them. A zero is going to is going to to uh, compel some people to get their work done. At the same time. I would say that if you enter a class where they're struggling learners, many of them are going to say, I don't care if I get that zero. I was going to swear there for a second. I was going to say something like, I don't give a shit if I get that zero. You're welcome to. Oh, nice. It's going to open it right up. <laughs> They're going to say, I, I don't care. It has no impact on me. So, so I always, I always question people who, a little bit who say, well, if I, if I can't use zeros, they're not going to get it done. So you're telling me that, People will not do the assignments in your classroom unless you wield some kind of kind of the proverbial whip or say these bad things will happen to you if you don't do it. Right off the bat, I would question what the assignments are. Right off the bat, I would question what kind of environment you've created in that classroom. When I'm teaching my leadership class and I show a, I show a scene from a movie and I say, okay, okay, right now, I want you to take a moment. I want, to, I want you to break down this scene as to what's the power imbalance, and we're take, say we're taking say we're taking um, power theory in leadership. I've got a completely eclectic class in there, but we start watching an interesting scene, or we start watching a piece, and you you lure kids into it. You get you get them to get involved. Not a, I'm not wielding zeros above anybody's head, but a lot of the time when you hear somebody say what you had mentioned before, I go, well, what's what's the assignment? And it can be as literal as, well, I hand out this worksheet. Okay, stop right there. Stop right there. Yeah, I bet you need some carrots and sticks if it's worksheet-based. If it's turn to the back of your textbook and do those 20 questions or whatever it might be. I, I, I think, Jeremy, that ship has sailed a little bit. Like, and even, well, it used to work. Yeah, in the 60s, I mean, like, maybe, but do you want to know something else? We turfed a lot of kids out of those schools back then if you start looking through the records. I know we're going down a completely different path now, but, but when you start talking about, I talked to former administrators of this school and they said, those problems, wouldn't even deal with those problems. We would just kick those kids out of school. I think the landscape has changed in so many ways that we need to have educators coming up with, but some of the easiest things are the things that people go back to to say, I'm going to use a zero if it doesn't get done. And compelling questions, coming up with compelling things to do in the classroom. You have to, 
You have to instigate some of that interest and facilitate those activities. And I know it's not easy. Okay. It's not, I know that's not going to be popular with everybody for me to say it, but I believe it's true. I'll leave school names out of this, but I've been an administrator in a number of schools. You all know how few discipline cases you have out of, out of, out of certain environments in your school that are, that are compelling and interesting. Not a lot. People are compelled and interested. Even your most at-risk kids, you know? And I know some of that has to do with the activities. I get that. Like, I mean, by the very curriculum, you know? Um, some of the students in this high school, when they get to, when they get to auto shop or when they get to, to some of those places, they can just finally work with their hands. They're good. But yeah, if they, if they have to sit for 90 minutes in a desk in rows and, and listen, you know, and take eight pages of notes and listen to someone talk to them, it doesn't go as well. Um, surprise, surprise. Um, I do, I do really want to ask about another sort of like kind of hot topic because uh, we're doing our book study on uh, grading smarter, not harder in our school. Thanks. And the, and the concept of the homework, your ideas about homework um, have ignited some uh, interesting debates, I guess, among some of our staff members. Perfect. Um, that was the intention. <laughs> tell the listeners, uh, what are your thoughts on how homework should be assessed and assigned, really? Okay, well, Jeremy, I'm going to throw it back at you. So you're in this group. What's the purpose of homework? Like, if you ask, just stop any educator and go, before we get into any of the grading decisions or whatever, let's go, let's go, like I did earlier, let's back the bus up and go, what's the purpose? Now, what do you think? It what, could be a wide variety of, of responses there. It could be like about responsibility. It could be about practice. It could be about content knowledge. Um, so a variety of things. So. Okay. Okay. So let's, great. So let's start with a few of these. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have some of these, like these, I know we're getting close to baseball playoffs here. So let's, let's throw some, let's throw some fast pitches in. Uh, someone says, I'm trying to teach my students responsibility. Okay. Is that in the standards? Is, is responsibility one of your standards in, in AP history? Is it? Mm, how about your science nine class? Is it, does it say that? No. Okay. What? No, 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 Myron. But I want to, but I want to, I want them to, I want to teach them responsibility. Fine. Why don't you comment on the report card back to the process argument? Why don't we have a place on the report card to say, you know what? Jimmy's actually getting by in this class, but boy, I think it would really help if he did his homework. And I bet his grade would be higher if he did. Great, report it. But, but don't put some arbitrary number into that grade book, which skews your data on what they actually have demonstrated. So if, if Timmy comes in and he has demonstrated this, 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 and this, let's try to base his grade on that, what we saw him do. If he didn't do his homework, we don't know why that didn't occur, but that could be a process comment. And then they go, no, 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 I am teaching responsibility. Well, then I sometimes say, well, why, do you, why are you putting that on your shoulders? I'm just curious. Why? Why? I think it'll make them you know, better people. I think, it'll, you know what? I sometimes said, let, let their summer employer take care of some of that. What? Let their summer employer take care of some of that. If they show up late for, for work at Dairy Queen, guess what? They're probably going to get fired. Probably, especially as a young employee that doesn't have a lot of rights and has a summer job, that might be where they learn that. The first time I missed a, missed a flight when I was 18 flying somewhere, I slept in. Well, that sucked. This is what happens when you're late. Yeah, that's what happens. There are places in life where you can learn some of those things. 
I don't know that we have to use our grade book of all things to do it. It's just pe people look at their grade book as this strange multi-tool that it, it, it should have a scissor, it should have a spoon, it should have a fork that pulls out, it should have all these things. Why are you using your grade book to try to instill responsibility in people? Just use your grade book to put grades in it that reflect what you, what you think your students have understood and know. That's it. That's all the great book is for. And then let's use other things to do to encourage these responsibility pieces. And in case someone's reaching, okay, someone's reaching for their volume, their power button right now. Hang on, hang on. Don't, don't, don't press it yet. I'm a dad. I have two kids. I want very badly for those two kids to be responsible, good citizens. Okay? I really want that. I just don't think the grade book is the place to do it. What is the grade book purposeful for? Let's, let's use homework maybe to answer a bit of that question, Jeremy. So someone says, I'm going to grade homework. Well, who did it? Who did it? Well, the, the student did. And I was, I was working in Kentucky one time, and there's this round table of teachers that we'd broken off into conversations. And this guy says, I have... I have 50% of my grade book is homework and effort, and that's that. I said, homework? Yeah. So the stuff they do at home? Yes. All right. So how do you know who did it? Well, well, they, they do it. So I said, oh, oh, it's only in British Columbia that students have their moral compass out of whack and and they and they copy off each other. It's nice. It's nice to know in Kentucky that that doesn't happen. And people around the table kind of laugh. And the guy was getting a little angry. I said, "Hang on, hang on. I'm not. I'm not trying to fight with you. But I'm just saying, are you are you trying to honestly tell me that you don't think students copy off one another? Well, I I, I don't I don't think so. Okay. So when your students are sitting in class and they're about to take a, you know, say a unit test or a test or a quiz of some kind, do you walk on down to the uh, staff room and grab a coffee during that time? And you got so much faith in these people, no one's going to whisper over to someone? And it goes quiet around the table. Right? Well, no. Well, you should. They, your kids don't cheat. So, Jeremy, the biggest issue for me is, you know what I honestly believe? I honestly believe that people who have a grading system for work done elsewhere might be promoting irresponsibility. Maybe. Do you not think that is a built-in incentive program for students to copy off one another? If you don't think it, oh, it is. I have personally witnessed it. You want a story on that? Of course. Okay. So I'm walking through the, I'm walking through the uh, common area of one of my high schools I was working at. And this is when I was trying a bunch of these things. This is the same school where someone said I'm, I was wrecking the moral fabric of the place. Um, and I'm walking through the common area and I see, I, I see just, just classic copying behavior, right? You'll know this, Jeremy, like it's, it's, it's the last 20 minutes of lunch and there's somebody looking over at somebody's work and they're writing feverishly. Right. And I walk up and I go, so, so what's going on here? Uh, well, we, uh, just, and it's, um, we'll call them Kyle and Sonoma and, and Sonoma is just, she goes, she goes, listen, I don't, I don't, I normally, I normally don't do this. It's not for your class, Mr. Duick. Um, and it wouldn't be because I'm not going to grade this. I'm not going to grade what they quickly copied off somebody else's paper. I'm not interested in that, but she's like, there's 25% of our grade is based on homework in this class. And, and 
and uh, and and I, I have to get it done. I said, so so how often does this occur? Well, I I worked late last night, Michelle. I said, hang on, stop. How often does this occur that you're feverishly writing something down? And Kyle kind of lifts an eyebrow. He looks up at me, looks over at Sonoma, and Kyle says, I think I'm going to tell him. Sonoma says, don't tell him. You're sworn to secrecy. No, I think I'm going to tell him. Mr. Duick, it's called Homework Club. Hmm, tell me about this. He says, we have five people in the club, and we got one month left here in grade 12, so I really don't care if I tell you about the club. It's been going on for a long time. We got five people in the club. I'm Monday. She's Tuesday. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are somewhere else. The deal is you get the homework done on your given day. You distribute this around to everybody. It's mindless stuff. It's, work, it's worksheets. We get them done and everybody hands it in. If you don't get your homework done on the night you had, guess what? You're booed out of the club for a while. Huh. Now let's be clear, Jeremy. Do I think that's ethical behavior? No. But do I think we've incentivized systems like that? Yes, we have. By, by, the, by, the, by the systems we put in place. If they are that easy to crack, um, we have some responsibility in that. If I tack a $20 bill to the bulletin board in the middle of my school, do I expect that $20 bill to be there at the end of the day? I doubt it. You say, oh, that's theft. Eh, yeah, but you tacked a $20 bill to the wall. We can say, but that's cheating. Yeah, but I'm going to say you, you, you've kind of sown the field to, to be that, and it's going to happen. So... I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in grading one student's paper when I have no idea who did it. So you want to call that responsibility? You want to call uh, those homework systems building better citizens? I highly disagree. What does? Okay, so let's, let's, let's right off the bat, let's disincentivize the, the copying behavior. Don't grade what was done somewhere else. I said to myself, you know, I think, all, I think the only thing I'm going to grade only thing I'm going to score, the only thing I'm going to, I'm going to assess for the grade book is stuff done in my classroom. I have control over my classroom. I can, I can manage that environment. I can, I can set the norms. I can make it a place that's, 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 that's reflective of equality and, and be sensitive to the differences of students. I have all kinds of control in there. So why don't I just grade stuff done in there? So let's, let's go flip this back over. So rather than Sonoma and Kyle um, copying all those ideas down, and the teacher goes, but I, but I really want to, I want to assess whether they know that. Fine. Take a small sampling of the information from that assignment and put a short quiz together for the next morning. Um, while we're at it, and this is in grading smarter, not harder, and an updated version coming up in the next book, why don't we build a tracking sheet for students to say, I did my homework or I didn't. They can track that themselves. Uh, that's starting to, tap, starting to tap on the door of, of John Hattie and student self-reporting. Why don't we get their voice and see what they think? So did you or did you not do your, your homework, Jeremy? Uh, I did. Great. How did you do on that quiz that I had in class, those four key questions I asked? It took next to no time to grade. It was super quick. How'd you do? Great. Wonderful. We see now a correlation between you putting effort in at home to get the homework done, which correlates to a stronger quiz score in the class. You can start to, to see a connection between those things. And this is um, self-regulation feedback. John Hattie talks about three different types of feedback. The feedback you're getting right there is not only 
do you understand the material? The feedback you're also getting is that when I put effort in at home, that pays benefits when, I'm, when I face an assessment. Rather than the feedback being, when I copy off my friend, I get the 25% score the next morning in class. That's a terrible feedback loop. Really bad if, if, if our goal is to create responsible citizens. I'd far sooner be interested in a system that teaches somebody to work hard at home, spend some time on these, on these ideas, and then they can come in the next morning and demonstrate that understanding. That is how, that's a, that's a, that's a proper homework technique. And, and it completely aligns with people who say, often in math, uh, say in languages, um, science, that the homework's really important. Yeah. Well, then treat it that way. I don't think grading it actually adds importance to it. Grading is going to incentivize cheating. Assessing the key ideas in your classroom will promote those homework decisions. Can you speak a little bit more about your, your new book? You said it's sort of like a... Is it a next edition of the Grading Sparker Not Harder? Is it an extension of it? Um, new material or different thinking, different approaches? You know, it, 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 it's, a great, it's a great question. Grading Smarter Not Harder was, was written as a book of a teacher, myself, on, a, on, a, on kind of a six-year journey into how do I change my assessment methods? How do I change my grading decisions? How do, I how do I develop a retesting system for kids that I will largely manage? Uh, the next book is called Giving Students a Say, Assessment Practices That Empower and Engage. That's, that's pretty much the title. We might, we might tweak it a bit here or there. The whole purpose of the book, Jeremy, is to start, start looking around at the, at the actual origins of the word assess. And I don't know if you were them or any of your listeners, but assess comes from a Latin word, assidere, which means to sit beside. It wasn't to sit across from, it is to sit beside. So what if we assessed with our students rather than to our students? And it's been, it's been, a, it's been a fun book to write, it's been a very challenging book to write, and people who pick it up are going to see something like, oh yeah, I recognize the unit plan from grading smarter, not harder. But now we've introduced a way that you can co-create some of those targets with students. Uh, I tell stories of teachers that, that part the way through a unit will stop it and say, okay, so now it's time for you to build a, a, to build a learning target that you're going to explore based on what we've done so far. So in grading smarter, not harder, I, I'm a big fan of unit plans. I still am being really clear on student-friendly learning objectives. In this book, we take the next step and go, well, what would it be like if students had a hand in that? And, and at first, I found it terrifying. Like, what, I'm going to hand that over? No, you don't hand the whole thing over. It's getting them involved. How do we get students to, to understand the, the, the grading of an assignment through much, much better rubric design? And what are, some of the, what are some of the things that can come about in your classroom when you start doing that? What if we did bring, even in high schools, uh, four levels of reporting, maybe six levels of reporting, and invited students to, to rate themselves on one of those categories to, to grade? Let's not do that with 100 categories. That's too many. But 
but if we're going to describe work, what might that look like? Every single chapter starts with something in the real world, had a ton of fun writing about it, and it drifts over to how are we going to welcome students into assessment in our learning targets, in our ongoing assessment routines, in how we grade, in how we report. It's full of, of tools for each of those, each of those questions. And I, and I think it's an, honestly, I think it's a little more entertaining read even than grading smarter, not harder. And I know a lot of people said they, they, they kind of laughed and had a good time reading it. I think, I think this one's going to be even more so. I look forward to reading it. It sounds like it's, it's really uh, about really shifting that cognitive lift, you know, onto the students instead of on, onto those teachers. Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I've heard it said by many people over the years, why are teachers going home so much more tired than the students at the end of the day? It's because we're doing everything. I love your term there, cognitive lift. We're lifting everything. Let's shift some of that over. And, and I really dive into research around what's to be gained from things like desirable difficulties, the work of Bork and Bork at UCLA. I dive, I dive deeply into um, the... In Grading Smarter, Not Harder, I talked about it a lot from the standpoint of my classroom and how I saw it working. What I really, what I really think is going to help with this book are folks that, that want to take some of those steps. And there's a whole lot more of the super compelling research that's behind those things and, what, and why, we, why we might want to look at it from that angle. There's still plenty of student voice in this book. A lot of students interviewed about students challenging me about this this six level scale we're trying in our high school like why are we doing this so the book is jammed with some of those accounts too of how do you manage some of these conversations and they're real conversations so yeah i'm, I'm really excited it was a bit of a bear to write i won't lie i thought i would bash that book out in like a year and it's taken me almost four but it's but i'm excited uh john hattie agreed to write the forward for it oh, nice. um so yeah, um, maybe it's out in January. Uh, that's, that's kind of the plan. All right, book study for us part two. If you could select like the three biggest moves that you would recommend for teachers to make from all of the, the work that you have, what three things would you say and why uh, would be the most important things to do? Um, I would be, if there's three things I would suggest to any teacher, it's number one, Break down your standards into really student-friendly, usable, usable um, documents that they and you understand. Two, you base your instruction, your grading, and your reporting on those things. That's it. Thirdly, when it comes to reporting, choose a language, a reporting language that the student understands where they are and can articulate themselves where they believe they exist. And that can't be, I'm an 82% math student. That, that is not it. If somebody says, I am a, you know, I'm a proficient math student and here's why I can demonstrate, I can, and you say, well, what, 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 how do you know that? Well, I'm going to come and show you based on descriptors what I can do. And that's what we base our reporting on. It's those three things. I clearly know where I'm going. I have a language to articulate it, and I myself can, can substantiate why I am where I am. 
that is how we will shift it over to students and still maintain control. It's not about giving that away. It's just that the students will understand the key pieces. And we have to, we have to lift the shroud. It can't be a mystery. But if you look at my classroom now, you know, you're going to see much more of this in, in giving students to say, we, we tried things, Jeremy, like um, a few times a term, a student would get a template that's got, say, three sections in it. If it's, if it's uh, um, Marnie Mendel's food class that I use, it's, uh, she has a diagram where it's, I'm in the upper shelf of the fridge, I'm in the middle of the fridge, or I'm in the crisper. And, and there's three levels. So, so she says to students, uh, give some evidence from this week as to where you think you are. And based on, so we've been looking at the topic so far has been how effective can we, can we be in eliminating sugar in our diet and using alternatives. So now rank yourself, explain where you think you are right now with that. And we're just getting students to talk about their own learning. So there are ways to do it. There are tools to do it. Um, there just has to be a will. And, and as uh, John Hattie kind of indicates in the foreword he's written, I want to think that I've, I've provided some direction and tools uh, for people in that, in that vein. Shifting the conversation a little bit back to humility. What has been your best failure? I'm going to go back to struggling learners. You know, I'm going to go back to that class that I had of 25 students that had either failed social studies nine or social studies 10. And what I, what I had to fail at in that class was thinking that, I could just carry on with that group and do what I did everywhere else. What I did in my, in my more upper end social studies class, I was going to come in and let's, let's plow through content and let's, let's wield some, some punitive grading measures. And let's, let's just, let's just, let's just, you know, <laughs> when all you got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Let's just, let's just do what we've done and the way I know how to do it. And I was burnt. I was, I was going up in flames until I said, all right, it's going to have to be done differently than this. And it's no wonder that those students have a script in their back pocket of, you know, the research in, in Malcolm Gladwell's book blink that people make a decision very quickly, whether they're going to be successful somewhere. They make, they make a decision very quickly about their odds of meeting when they meet someone as to whether it's going to work or not. Um, I initially was failing in that in with that class and it was just the perfect proving ground for me to try some alternative assessment and grading methods that connected me closer with students that that demonstrated empathy and compassion every day on test day and on regular days and i'm going to tell you we have a pretty high stakes uh, provincial exam in that in that course at that time every one of those students passed the high stakes exam at the end of the year with the exception of one. And that's about the same um, passing percentage I had in, in any of my classes. And if I hadn't failed, Jeremy, if I hadn't stumbled around for a bit, I don't think I would have figured it out. And I, would, I don't think I would have seen the, the dramatic shifts that occurred when I shifted homework routines. I, I was starting my retesting system at that time and there was a boy that, that I talk about this in Grading Smarter Not Harder when he, when he came up with this, my, his tracking sheet that he was doing when we were, when we had got his test back. And at that time there was a section worth two. And I thought, I thought if I make it, if I make a category out of two, 
I bet you some of these kids might get two out of two and they're going to be able to put a hundred percent there. And they were doing their own tracking sheet and this mountain of a, you know, a tall kid, big kid in my class. Uh, he comes up to me and he says, can I take this test home to show my mom? And I said, well, you know, I, I spend all this time on tests and all this time on tracking sheets. I don't want you to take it home. I try to keep them in class. I don't want them passed around and handed down like family heirlooms. I said, but what do you want to show your mom? Because he had, he had like 42% on the test. I was still using percentages at the time. And he said, well, look. I was like, I'm looking, I'm looking. And he's like, look. And sure enough, he had that section two out of two. And he had written 100. And he said, I want to go show my mom this 100. This kid's 17 years old. And, and he, he says, you know, Mr. Duick, maybe school went great for you, but... I've never had a hundred percent beside my name in anything ever. And I want to show my mom this because this will make a difference for me at home. And if, if that, if that doesn't serve as a pretty poignant um, indicator, uh, uh, you know, the canary in the coal mine that, that tells you that maybe, maybe this shift has been a good one. I don't know what does. And, and it was just starting to see that we can empower kids. We can, we can meet them halfway if, and we have an awful lot of power when it comes to our assessment and grading decisions. So I think I had to stumble around a bit first and it was a good thing. Well, lucky for us that you did. <laughs> Too kind. Um, what's your big advice for other humble, badass educators out there? You know, I'm going to lean on a little bit of Celeste Kidd's work. She she has a big part in my upcoming book. And she meeting her was phenomenal. She works on research around expectations of environment. So my advice for all the badass educators out there is that we as human beings, no matter what the environment is, we go into it with expectations. We... If, if you're saying, oh, let's go to that wicked pub, the one we went to, why are you calling it that wicked pub that we went to and had a great time? Because you have expectations of that environment. You, you expect it to be maybe a, a repeat of, those, of that time you had and you're looking forward to it, just like you would going out to one of your favorite places to eat, just like you would if you're going to go see a movie where you thought the trailer looked phenomenal. You have expectations of your environment and guess what? your behaviors are going to be greatly impacted by that expectation. If it goes the way you want it to go, you're going you're gonna to react accordingly. If you go out to that favorite restaurant and, you're, and your, your steak is way overcooked and your potatoes taste like cardboard, you're going to probably have a, a behavioral reaction to that. Myron, where are you going with this? All of our students form an expectation of the learning environments that they're in. Every single day, they are going to arrive in that classroom with a set of expectations. And, and so much of Celeste's kids' work focuses on why do kids tune out? Why do kids have, have behavioral reactions that we find negative? Well, you know what? A lot of those are rational and healthy based on their expectations. If, if, if I'm living in a, in a home where uh, there's substance abuse. Uh, the party was rocking till 2 a.m. on a Wednesday night. Uh, the police showed up at three. 
what do you think my expectations of my environment are the next morning when I'm supposed to bring that homework assignment in? Well, I might, I might tell my teacher to F off that morning if there's a homework check because I'm, my behavioral reaction is going to be reflective of the expectations of my environment. And I think we have to be really, really conscious of that. We have, Jeremy, we wield so much power in the type of environment our students will expect. And if arriving in your classroom, they'll expect an environment of equity, they'll, they'll expect an environment that is, that is caring and compassionate, and they will expect an environment that the grading and assessment practices are, are transparent and fair. And, and if you can achieve those things, I think we would go an awful long way of creating much better schools. That's powerful advice. Um, Myron, thank you, first of all, for your time. Um, thank you also for pushing these ideas. Thank you for pushing the thinking of a system that, you know, just has proven not to really be as effective as what we want it to be. Um, I think you've done an incredible job. I don't know how you do all the things that you do. <laughs> you've got so many jobs and you coach volleyball on top of it all. Um, but really, honestly, pleasure to talk with you. Um, I hope that we can continue to um, learn many things from you. I really look forward to reading your next book and thank you again for your time. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Let's do it again. All right, let's do it. Thank you for tuning in to Humble Badass Educators. Again, the biggest goal of this podcast is to share the transformative ideas of what can work in the world of education. So if you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to share a link to this episode with someone you think may also be interested in hearing these ideas. If you or someone you know is also a humble badass educator, I'd love to hear from you as I continue my quest in learning about the amazing things that are happening out there right now. Know that the term educator is not just school-based. An educator is anyone that helps another person learn. Until next time, this has been Jeremy Jensen with Humble Badass Educators. Thanks for listening.